you got to bring your Bibles with you when you come to things, not just here, when you go anywhere. Because otherwise you're stuck reading the New York Times when you're waiting for things. You find yourself in a discussion and you don't have your Bible to give a decent answer to the, to the faith. Right? So carry your Bible with you wherever you go. Nate say, but what am I going to do with my Bible? I open it up and... What can I say about it? It's a bunch of pages, and when I'm looking at it, it's just a bunch of words on a page. I have the answer for you. Because I'm not like a Superman. There's not a Superman where he can just open his Bible and everything's by memory, and he can look at that and tell you exactly what it says. No. So, first of all, a Bible case. Okay, to carry your Bible in. Why do you need a case to carry your Bible in? Because you have more than your Bible inside it. You open it up, and what's inside? Some highlighters, different colors so you can highlight thematically. You guys think I'm crazy, but I'm serious. A pen with four... A pen with four... I hate tabs, but that's all right. A pen with four colors. Very nice, very helpful. What else is in my handy Bible case? Right there on the front. If I lose it, where to call and $150 reward. It really should be like more like a thousand bucks. All right, I open up the inside. A ruler. What do I need a ruler for? I'm going to show you that in a second. To have straight lines. Why do you want to write straight lines in your Bible? What the? All right, first of all, two quick things real quick. This is geometrically. We talked about graven images. Right? When you have to explain to somebody why the church has graven images and doesn't contradict the Bible, where are you going to turn? What's the first thing they're going to turn you to to show you that you're in Exodus? Exodus where? 20. Yeah, generally 20. Exodus, uh, where were we? 25. Numbers, John. Exodus 20. Sheep. Turn to Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments. <laughs> Exodus 20. Real quick, because this is not my show tonight, and I'm taking it over. Exodus 20, verse 4. You should be there. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make yourself a graven image. See, you Catholics, you contradict the Bible. Right? Now, you're going to sit there and scratch your head and say, oh, I know there's an answer to this. So at least I've gotten you halfway. You're not going to lose your faith on it. But you know there's an answer. Now, where do you got to turn to find an answer? The first step. The bookmark. Ah! No, not the bookmark. How are you going to remember what my brothers told you? Guess what? I don't have a perfect memory. So you know what? I write it in my Bible with my handy-dandy pen right on the edge of the page. Look, my brother's an artist, and he drew you a nice book. So what do you do? I don't have a great memory, so I'm there. They just turned me. Okay, thank you for turning me to the text where my note is. And I have written there Exodus 25. Turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, verse 18. 25, 18. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. Ah! Remember, that's God commanding the, the, the making of images. Okay? And so on from there. From there, uh, I've got a note for 1 Kings chapter 6. So I've turned my Bible a couple pages, and now I've got that text there, and I write 1 Kings chapter 6. All right? And then I go from there. You don't have to turn there. It's okay. I'm not going to give you the whole thing again. <laughs> so you got to start to write in your Bible so that you can go back and study this on your own and have a chance to defend the faith when you are challenged. Okay? I'm not going to turn you to 1 Timothy. But in situations where the context of the passage is the key, that's where your ruler comes in. Because you take it from your verse that's our problem verse. Right? What, what about confessing to a priest? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, right? Was right within that context that the explanation is found. And so I take my nice little ruler, I draw a line to the, con the passage in context, 
And I circle that one. That way, whenever anyone turns me to 1 Timothy to show me that there's one mediator, yes, I believe that. I'm reminded the context. I say, yes, but. And I follow my nice little line to the other verse. And I have all sorts of other passages written down there. Okay? You've got to make the Bible usable for yourself. It's a holy book, but not so holy if it's left on your shelf. Okay? Finally, we're going to start an apologetics discussion group following up this series on all sorts of other topics. Okay, and where's Bill? And is Anson here yet? Anson's not here yet. Bill and Anson and one other person I haven't talked to yet are going to lead it. Um, and uh, what I need you to do is give your names on the back there, on uh, that orange piece of paper. Okay, give your name and email. Even if you're already on my email list, if you want to get involved in that, to come here, maybe a little smaller group, interested in diving deeper into the text, discussing other topics like that on another night of the week, um, then put your name and email there, and we're going to do that. Okay? During the break, remember, if you remember from last week, we're going to do a double header tonight. Okay? My brother's going to do his first session in 45 minutes. We're going to do a double header, and so during the break, you're going to write down any uh, uh, topics that you're interested in that we haven't discussed, and my brother's going to hit them from the hip. Okay? So um, there it is. Thank you very much. Talk yourself out.
could completely digest that book. You'd be able to see the pages in your memory when you're done with it. And I'd ask you about where is the first time that, that, uh, that you know, Bilbo finds about the ring. Well, you'd be able to flip right over there to, to when he finds the ring with Gollum. Right? And then any other reference you'd have cross-references. So we're talking about a life in that situation. And God's written one book. Not Tolkien, but God. Pretty important. So. All right. Uh, tonight, that book, the Bible, and the Bible alone. So after that homily on uh, sermon on the Bible, you've often heard that phrase, the Bible and the Bible alone. I didn't leave the Bible and the Bible alone. I was just listening to a tape I picked up at a truck stop in West Virginia on the way here. <laughs> the badge of biblicism. The Bible and the Bible alone. Those Christians out there who are not part of the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or the Eastern Catholic part of the, the apostolic tradition, this is a phrase you hear constantly out of their mouth. It's the symbol of Christianity for them. The Bible and the Bible alone. Would that we love the Bible as much as they do. But the phrase the Bible and the Bible alone, as we'll see, is problematic. If you look at the first paragraph I have for you there, the title, Why the Bible Alone is the Tradition of Men, we'll just start out by looking at that first paragraph. The phrase the Bible alone, or sola scriptura, sola scriptura is Latin. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Grazia. These are the three pillars of the Protestant Reformation by which Martin Luther drove ahead his Reformation. The three pillars. Sola Fide, Sola Scriptura, Sola Grazia. Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide are the ones that we as Catholics have a problem with because they're not the Bible. But Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. Okay, that's where you hear that phrase. That's why you constantly hear that out of your Baptist friend's mouth or your or the, the plain Bible church friend. The Bible alone, the Bible alone, the Bible alone. Where's that in the Bible? Right? Look here in the Bible, it says this. Well, yeah, but what I mean is this. Well, show me where that is in the Bible. It's constantly undergirding every conversation you're having. Even Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't believe in the Bible, the Bible alone, though they say they do, will oftentimes talk like this. And the first time I talked to Jehovah's Witness about these types of issues, they were asking me, yeah, but here it says this, this, this in the Bible. And I said, but we don't really mean it that way. And they said, show me in the Bible. If you really believe in the Bible, show me. Okay, so the Bible, the Bible alone. This is one of the three pillars of the cross of the Reformation. Now, when we talk about the Bible alone, we don't just simply mean that things must be found explicitly in the Bible, but that you do not believe what you cannot find clearly in the Bible. Right? So, uh, in a quote from Carl, uh, Ron Carlson, Fast Facts on False Teachings. Pretty funny book. I went and heard this guy speak, so I bought his book. And it's a great book for finding out, you know, uh, kind of the, the way they make their arguments. The, the Catholic Church has added doctrines, traditions, these are all buzzwords we'll talk about tonight. Doctrines, traditions, and ideas of men, which are not found in Holy Scripture and which are, in fact, contrary to Scripture. So first of all, you get lots of buzzwords loaded in there. Traditions, doctrines, these are the guys, these are the names of the boogeymen that are on your bed. The, and traditions of men. You've heard those phrases. Come on, there's seats, there's seats. Uh, traditions of men. But not only are we talking about what's found or not found in the Bible, but contrary to Scripture. Now, of course, you as a Catholic, well, I hope things that I believe are not contrary to Scripture, and I promise you they're not. 
But that's not the only issue. It's do you believe things that are not found explicitly in the Bible or even alluded to? So there are actually two distinct the, uh, related issues that need to be dealt with here. One is the issue of the Bible alone, and the other has to do with tradition. So we'll begin with the first. And again, when you're talking about these issues, when you're talking to your friend about this stuff, when they're asking these questions, it's going to be mixed all together. Tradition versus the Bible. And whenever you talk about the Bible, or you talk about something else, they'll say, well, that's a tradition. Show me where it is in the Bible. So it's the Bible and tradition are constantly being polarized. And you'll find that unless you clarify and distinguish, we're going to talk about one thing at a time here. We're going to talk about the Bible, Bible alone, or we're going to talk about tradition. Whichever one you want to talk about, let's talk about that. And then we'll move on to the next topic. In fact, you'll find when you're talking about a lot of these issues that we've talked about already, or some of these issues on this bookmark you have, or as you get involved with the apologetics group, that a lot of times when someone has a question, they come to you, it's oftentimes a mixture of questions, a not. And you have to unravel that knot and pick it one string at a time and say, okay, we're going to talk about this part right here first, and then we'll move on to the next one. And you'll find that when you're talking, they're going to immediately want to make you move over another, to another spot. Not intentionally, not that they want to confuse you or frustrate you, but that just as if you're having a conversation with anyone. They're constantly jumping around. They want to talk about stuff. Jehovah's Witnesses are professionals at this. <laughs> if you challenge a Jehovah's Witness on one spot, they immediately will move to another spot. They're professional debaters. So we'll talk about this issue of the Bible first, and then we'll talk about tradition. Two different ways that the Bible alone, Sola Scriptura, is typically argued. One is not very common and relatively simple. We'll deal with that first. And you need to, you need to understand it uh, anyway because you occasionally will encounter it. So flip with me in your Bibles to the end of John's Gospel. Actually, actually, we'll start at the beginning of John's Gospel. John chapter 3. John 3.16. You know, the football game verse. John 3.16. Those of you who don't know or watch football, I don't watch football either. But apparently, every time I bring this verse up, people tell me this. Oh, yeah, I've seen that verse. When? I was watching football. <laughs> Tragedy, of course. That's when they focus on the verse. But I was watching football, and this guy, every time the screen would go, you know, the camera would go by, they'd hold up this big sign that said John 3.16 or whatever the verse. There's the rainbow man. He used to go to all these, um, he had this big rainbow hair wig. He used to go to all these sporting events. And and even, like, even like protests and stuff. And all that. <laughs> nothing to do with John 3.16. It's, it's a beautiful verse. Of John's Gospel, it's the core of John's theology, properly understood. Verse chapter three, verse sixteen: For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Yes. You sure? Yes. Because sometimes I read verses on the Bible. Do you believe that? No, I don't think so. Well, wait a minute. I maybe I do. Do you believe that? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Okay. Now turn with me to the end of John's Gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30. How do I know which where I'm going? It's highlighted in my Bible. You think I've got it all memorized. John chapter 20. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John's closing up his doctor. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing he may have life in his name. Listen to that again, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs. You know, when you're talking to your Baptist friend, they oftentimes will readily admit, obviously Jesus did other stuff. And you Catholics are constantly, yeah, well, Jesus told his disciples this and that. Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's by tradition we know that the apostles believe this. Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's by tradition that we know. Well, I don't know if I can trust tradition. 
Obviously, Jesus did many other signs and other things. I mean, we're not talking about a camcorder when we're talking about the Bible. Right? This little thing we call the New Testament is going to give us the story of Jesus. I mean, three years of public ministry. What did he eat for lunch? For three years. You don't know. Yeah, you got a couple of the episodes. Some fish and bread, right? Things like that. What did he have for dinner every night? For three years. You don't know what he ate. It's not a verbatim transcript. Right, it's not a verbatim. And this is just what we have here in the Bible. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And so, yes, you Catholics, this is true. There are many things Jesus said and did which are not recorded in the Bible. But these things are... Okay, so now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, right? But these have been written. So we'll readily admit Jesus did it. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's the one that huh? says 144,000. They're almost telling that to everybody's face. Only 144,000 will be saved. Now look, it's right up here. We'll deal with 144,000 question and answer if you want. So, the book, so, so what, do, what do you have to say about that? I thought you, you all nodded, yes, belief in Jesus, but now we're looking at the end of the book here. There are many other things that Jesus said and did that are not written in this book. So obviously, yes, there's stuff not in the Bible. But these things have been written down for you that you may, that is the essentials of what Jesus did, that you may have belief in Jesus and believing you may have life in his name. So yeah, you may say Jesus taught about this and Jesus taught about that. Yeah, maybe, who knows? Speculation. But we do know that what's been written down in this book for us is the essentials that will bring you to belief in Jesus. And believing in Jesus, as John's told us, will give you life in his name. And that's it. What else do you want? Salvation. There's nothing else. What do you think? What is this book? Huh? Do you buy it? I'll buy it. What is this book? Is it John or Bible? What book are we talking about? The Bible, the Bible, right? Which book was John? Yeah, well, John because it was inspired. Therefore, the Holy Spirit had the entire scripture. So what I've done for you, I've been pulling the wool over your eyes. Now, the person doing this to you is not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. The person trying to convince you of this argument does not really know the basics of the argument and what's happened to them. Someone told them this when they were kids in Sunday school. So the person telling you this is not trying to deceive you. They're not trying to take you down the road of perdition or take you away from Jesus or from the Pope or Mary or like that. The person telling you this or giving you this argument loves Jesus and loves his holy word. And they're trying to convince you that all you need is the Bible the Bible alone. And they were told this is an argument for that. You will not hear it very often, but occasionally you'll bump into it, especially after the second argument that we'll talk about. Once you disassemble that second argument, sometimes they'll remember, oh, I remember this is so-and-so. She said in Sunday school, John said, all right, let's flip back to the end of John's Gospel. Okay, so you got to be aware of it. So what book are we talking about? John's Gospel. The book that you have in front of you in a bound form doesn't come for a few more centuries. Okay, after Jesus. It wasn't for decades until Paul's epistles were starting to be gathered together into a single scroll. They were in disparate places. The Gospels themselves, it took a while for them to be gathered together into a scroll called the Four Gospels. And it took even longer for you to get a gathering of scrolls to be called the New Testament of the Christian Scriptures centuries before the stuff was worked out. So, the book that John is talking about here, John's not, John's not working from a Gideon Bible with a few pages in the back that are still empty. He's kind of filling it in for you. Right? He's like, well, okay, we're almost done here. Just, well, maybe Paul will say something. The book of Revelation, maybe I'll have a vision say something there. But we're almost done. He's finishing it up. He's not talking about this book, but he's talking about his gospel. Biblos, in Greek, just means book. 
And book, or Bible, just simply means a collection of words. That's all it is. Something longer than a, you know, a paragraph. Just a small book or booklet we use today. So it can, it can mean Bible as a collection of books, like this thing is, or just a particular book, or a particular, you know, uh, group of paragraphs, like a letter. So the book that John is talking about here is John's Gospel. So what's the problem? The friend who is talking to you has just proved way more than they wanted to prove. Because if this passage proves the Bible and the Bible alone, what does it actually prove? The book that we're talking about is not the Bible, but the Gospel of John. So what they've just proven to you is all you need is the Gospel of John. And you'll find that occasionally this person who you pin down in this, in this argument, because they were told this from little kids, and yes, it's coming, they will occasionally, unfortunately, say, well, maybe, uh, yeah, I guess, Gospel of John, it's very important, and 316, and you can hopefully quickly rest them from that corner they're going to push themselves into. Because that would mean that the rest of the New Testament was a waste of God's breath. Right? Because it's inspired by God. Well, the rest of the Old Testament. And no Protestant who's talking to you about this would ever want to hold to that. But you will find occasionally when you're in one of these discussions that you'll find that you're, you, the person will end up pushing themselves into a corner by not wanting to admit, well, maybe I was wrong there. Maybe I wasn't talking correctly. So then, this is what this is very. Uh, this is one of the arguments that's used for the Bible and the Bible alone. It's not as common. You'll occasionally bump into it, but it's also helpful because it's very similar to what we're going to see in the next one. So the more common one that probably half of you at least have heard is from three, uh, 2 Timothy 3:16. Which one? 2 Timothy 3:16. And this is in your notes here. We're just going through the notes. If you don't have a Bible, all the quotes are right there for you. 2 Timothy 3.16. Where is it? 2 Timothy is in the New Testament. If you find Thessalonians, keep going. You're into the T's. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Or it's in Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles are arranged, as you'll find it, not in order in which they were written. This is why you never want to read the Bible from cover to cover. That's the worst thing on earth you can do. It was never designed to be done that way. And that's how people get utterly confused. Because the books of the Bible are not arranged. Half the books of the Bible are not arranged in chronological order. Some of them are. But many groups are not like the prophets. They're not arranged in chronological order. They're arranged in quarter, according to length. The, and also different eras. The... Pauline epistles are arranged according to length. Romans is the longest epistle, so it's in the front and the most complex. And the shortest, Philemon, is at the end. But that's not the order in which they were written. Paul wrote Romans right around the middle of all his epistles. First thing he wrote, first and second Thessalonians, which is towards the end because they're very short. So you never, if you read Paul's epistles from cover to cover, it's Romans all the way to Philemon, you get utterly confused. Oh. Quick yes. question on that. How do we read Paul's epistles? Is there some, uh, is there a good website we can go to on uh, advice for one word to read the Bible? You have to keep coming to these, these, these talks to learn about this. This is called Catholic Gnosticism. No, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the end. Raise that, question. Raise that question at the end and we'll talk about that. There's some very helpful programs. And bring a chair. And bring a chair. Uh, preferably one of those padded ones that he's trying to hide. Okay, so 2 Timothy 3.16, everyone's there. All scripture is inspired by God. Does everyone see that? Everyone agree with that? All scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. You all agree with that? Sure. I was talking to a Protestant minister friend of mine once, and he actually was trying to convince me that the Bible was inspired. He got here, he said, look, right here. 2 Timothy 3.16, I was asking about Soul and Scripture. I said, yeah. And he said, all Scripture is inspired by God. Huh? And I said, amen, brother. I'm with you on that, okay? This isn't, this isn't the issue. We're talking about the Bible alone versus tradition and things like that. He said, but it's all inspired. Don't you see that? Yes. Okay, so be aware that because Catholics never read the Bible, there is sometimes some confusion out there about what Catholics think about the Bible even. 
And this was a shocker to me. I, I couldn't believe he was trying to convince me that the Bible was inspired. <laughs> All scriptures inspired by God for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Mean, where do you think Luther found out about that? For correction and for training in righteousness. Everyone agree? That the man of God, verse 17, everyone there? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now you Catholics should enjoy that. Good works, hear that stuff, right? Huh? Complete. Equipped for every good work. Not just equipped to teach Bible studies. Not just equipped to uh, evangelize someone using the Bible, the Bible alone. But equipped for every good work. And as a Catholic, you believe, I hope, that your life as a Christian must be flowing with good works. You must be the tree that Jesus speaks about, which bears fruit. And by which you will be known. Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. John's Gospel, you must be attached to the true vine, which is Jesus, and the Father is the vine dresser. And if you don't bear fruit, he's going to cut you off like a, a vine dresser going through the field and throw you under the fire, Jesus says. So the Christian must be bearing, his life must be flowing with the fruits of good works. We are part of the body of Jesus. Jesus went around doing these things. You expect that we would, all, if we're truly the body of Jesus, would also act like Jesus. Every good work. Let's read that again in case some of you are wondering. All scriptures inspired by God, so not just some of it. For it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What do you think about that? Confident, sure. How many works, though? You got just confident in a few works, or what? Oh, every good work. So even if you got a bad translation, you Catholics, what do you got? Catholic Bible. Yeah, yeah. Something? yeah, that's a Catholic Bible. Mine's a Catholic Bible. Anyone? Huh? Confident. Confident. Furnished. Furnished. Sure, pick your translation, whatever. How many? Anyone have just a few good works? Just the good works, the, like praying the rosary or going and, and praying for the abortion mill. Those things Catholics are really into. What do you think about that? So what does this verse have to do with solus scriptorum? The Bible and the Bible alone. All you need is the Bible. What else would you need? But the verse doesn't say that. It says that it says all scriptures inspired by God. Yes, but it, but, no, but it does not say only scripture is inspired by God. Sure, fine. But it doesn't say that there is other things that are inspired by God. But it so does not say that there are not. Yeah. Sure, sure. The Bible, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say that there are not Martians on Mars. That all but isn't you can draw some conclusions from that. But you don't know, right? The Bible doesn't say anything about Martians on Mars. You could say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about Martians on Mars, so there must be Martians on Mars. No, you don't know that. You could say the Bible didn't say anything about Mars, so there's no Martians on Mars. But that's not Michelle's point, right? Aren't you saying that God believes the statement is simply that all scripture is inspired, and then it has this effect, but that's not exclusive of something else having the same effect? Yes, what else do you believe is inspired by God? What else do I? Oh, right. Well, what else do Catholics believe are inspired by God? That's the question, isn't it? Where's that in the Bible? That question? No. What, where? Show me in the Bible where other things are inspired by God. Oh, well, I don't think I can do that. You probably can. <laughs> All Scripture is inspired by God. We agree with that, right, Catholics? Yeah. But on the verse before, it's saying something about which scripture is it talking about. It's talking about his childhood, Holy Scripture. Okay, so what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Huh? What's the problem here? The old context. 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 It's not just. All. It doesn't say only well, well, scripture well, well, well. is inspired by God. If it said only scripture, then that's different. But it doesn't say only none of it. What you're doing is you're fighting a battle that you don't even fight. And here's the problem. 
I'm reading to you a verse completely out of context. Okay? As you'll find Romans 3.28. We hold that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay? Anyone in the room here? Converts? We'll try this one. We'll try it one other time. Any converts in the room? Raise your hand. Any, how many of you memorized that verse as a child? No? Alright, we got one. Finally. One, two. I'm not even a convert. I got no Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28. We hold the demand justified by works apart from the law. Or by faith apart from the works of the law, right? So this is a memory verse. Well, you'll find all kinds of these memory verses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. All of these passages we've been looking at, if you take them out of context, sure you're going to misunderstand. And don't ever let yourself be pushed into a battle trying to argue about some verse out of context. Because you're not going to win the battle. It's an absolute nonsense argument. Read it in context. And it's okay when someone takes you to a verse in the middle of a paragraph to say, you know what? I've never seen that verse before. I'm ashamed to say it. Or, I've read this passage, but I don't think I've seen it that way. Do you mind if we read it in context? Because even if you memorize all the verses on this little bookmark, and you memorize all the things we've talked about in these three nights together, and you continue on with this apologetics group, there is going to be a day, and it's going to happen very frequently if you get involved in this, that someone's going to turn you to a passage or present an argument to you that you've never heard before. So, you have to have principles by which you operate. If someone takes you to a passage, read it in context. If it's the middle of, if it's the middle of the paragraph, please start at the beginning of the paragraph. If it's the beginning of the paragraph, read the whole paragraph. If it's the end of the paragraph, come on. And furthermore, if that doesn't try to shed light on it for you and for the person who's discussing it with you, go further out. Read the chapter. You're talking about life and death, salvation. You got a few seconds. Read the chapter, right? Read the book. Take it the historical context. Context, context, context. Some of you already pointed out that if you go up to a few verses earlier, it starts to shed some light on this. Look at verse 10. In fact, look at the verse just above, just to show you how immediate the context is. Verse 15. Verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Okay, that helps out a little bit. Let's go back and read the paragraph. huh? Verse 10. Now you have observed my teaching. Now what are we talking about here? Just historical context. This is Paul. This is probably Paul's last letter he wrote, as far as we can tell, aside from maybe Hebrews. This is one of the last he wrote for sure, if not the last. And he's writing it from prison, as you can tell from chapter 4. He's writing from prison, and he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul left him there. He left him as a bishop there in Ephesus. And Paul knows he's about to die. This is his last time he's going to write to Timothy. And he realizes that as you read through this epistle, you can hear the turmoil in Paul's heart. He's not afraid to die, but he's afraid to leave Timothy. Timothy and Titus and the church and all these churches he started, he started, he's writing out to them and trying to give them last few words of wisdom. And Timothy's his friend, his disciple. So, verse 10. Now, you've observed my teaching. Think of this, the famous last words of a father and a son as he, before he goes to the guillotine. You've observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my persecutions, my sufferings. What befell me, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, with persecutions I endured, yet from all that the Lord rescued me. Timothy traveled around telling all his journeys. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So, so much for the health and wealth gospel, right? <laughs> well, evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse. But as for you, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you 
have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Who did you learn it from? Paul, verse 10. My teachings, my conduct, right? So he says, he's setting it up here at the end of his letter. He's saying, listen to me. My last words to you. Hold fast to everything I've taught you. My teachings, everything you've done, everything you've seen me do, not just what I've said, but how I've lived my very life, how even how I endured persecutions. I want you to learn how to endure persecutions by thinking about how I did. When they stoned me, I just laid down. You do likewise. So his, Paul's whole life is a life of preaching the story of Jesus. St. Francis says, you know those famous words, preach the gospel always. And only when necessary, use words. Alright? So, the life is very life. Not just his teachings, but his endurance, his everything he had to go through. And why? Because you know by the authority of whom of who taught it to you. And, verse 15, that's not enough, Timothy. And, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Timothy's mom was a Jew, but his dad was not. So he grew up learning about the, the history of Israel. He wasn't completely involved in the whole thing. So, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy's childhood? When Timothy was a child, there were no scriptures of the New, that we call the New Testament. When Timothy was a child, the only thing around would have been what you and I would call the Old Testament. That is the sacred writings for the early Christians. So what is Timothy being told here in, the, in, the, in this epistle? Hold fast to what I taught you, and it's the story of Jesus. And not only, but the very way I lived my life is going to tell you about that. And, Timothy, the scriptures that you learned from your childhood. A major problem in the early church was a question about these scriptures from the Old Testament. Gentiles flooding into the church. Do we have to circumcise them? No. Do, well, yes, we do. No, we don't. Yep. All right, let's have a council. Do they need to keep the kosher laws? No. Yes. All right, let's have a council. Right? Decide these things. Well, eventually the question arose, well, what is the value of these scriptures? And you see Paul dealing with this very early on. You have the early heretic Marcion, many of you probably heard, who thought that... There were two different gods. A God of the Old Testament, and Jesus was the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament was very difficult to work with. The God of the New Testament, he's Jesus, right? He's fun, he's happy. So, two different gods, two different scriptures, right? So there was a, there was a, her, a heretical movement very early in Christianity to disregard not only circumcision, kosher laws, but the entire scriptures of the Jews. And Paul said, no way. Timothy, everything I taught you, and the sacred writings you learned from your childhood. So as you read the context, you realize what Paul's talking about. You don't have to make a battleground over whether it means all is inspired or other things are inspired or not inspired. What's he dealing with here? He's dealing with the gospel story as he's presented to Timothy in his life and what we would call the Old Testament. So all scriptures are inspired by God that Paul is talking about in this historical context is the Old Testament. And again, he's not saying that other scriptures will not be inspired, but he's simply talking to Timothy. He's convinced that Timothy, make sure, while you're in Ephesus there, you meditate day and night on those psalms, on those scriptures you learned when you were a child. So then, in context, what does the argument really say? Same problem as the Gospel of John. That if this is a basis for sola scriptura, that is the Bible and the Bible alone, and if that's what Paul is really arguing for in this passage, then all you need is the Old Testament. And no one presenting this argument to you would want to argue for that. Right? They want to argue for the exact opposite reason. Because they have a very high regard for these holy scriptures. All right. Now, once you have dealt with both of these issues, and ordinarily they're not going to take you to both. Usually it's 2 Timothy 3.16. Once you've dealt with that, the immediate question is going to arise. Okay, fine. This passage is not proof of Scripture or the Bible alone. And neither is the passage in John. But what other option is there? Well, there's tradition. The tradition of the church. Well, tradition. 
And of course, red flags are gonna go up, lightning bolts and things are gonna explode around you. Tradition? No way. Jesus condemned tradition. Can't have it. It's a Catholic thing. Tradition ends. It's easy. And those questions, if they don't arise, will arise as you begin to move in the broader context. If you look outside of the, this immediate passage, come on, there's, there's if you move outside of this immediate passage, if you look at, for example, 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So, just a, two chapters earlier in the same book. He's saying, verse 8, Do not be ashamed, then, of the testifying of our Lord, nor of me, the prisoners, but take your share of the sufferings of the gospel. He's trying to encourage Timothy. Timothy's pretty young. He's trying to encourage Timothy. He tells him on other occasions, Don't let them make fun of you because you're young. Don't let them discourage you. You just preach the faith. Even though you're a young man. And you're a bishop of Ephesus. And then he says in verse 13 this. Not only preach the faith. But in verse 13 he says. Follow the pattern of the sound words. Which you have heard from me. In faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. What's he talking about? Paul has taught something to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy that what Timothy has and what Paul has is not up to their memory. It's up to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't entrusted it to them. Look down at the next paragraph, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong. Timothy's not a son, so it's spiritual son, spiritual father, as we have in church today. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, even if they forget and don't remember, attempt to entrust it to the faithful men who will be able to pass on to others who are probably going to forget anyway. Don't you have? I have. You then, my son, be strong in the graces in Christ Jesus, and what you have learned from me before many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We're talking about generations of knowledge. Paul says, Timothy, I've taught something to you. You've heard it from me, but it's entrusted, and it's not by your memory and my memory, but preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what you've learned from me, I want you to pass on to other trustful men who then will be able to pass it on to others. Four layers. Nowhere do you find Paul saying, and we're going to probably forget some of this, so this is why I've written this stuff down, and this is all you got to hold to. But again, as you raise these questions of the concept tradition of passing stuff on and, and people forgetting and whether things can become corrupted, the issue of tradition of men is going to be raised. And the classic passage you'll be turned to is in Matthew chapter 15. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 15, we'll talk about that. Again, Remember, you're trying to Matthew 15. The person trying to do this passage is not trying to deceive you, is not trying to take you out away from Jesus or away from Mary or from God. They are trying to bring you into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, which they themselves have probably a very close relationship with Jesus Christ. And they believe you as a Catholic probably do not. And so they're trying to help you learn the scriptures and you'll know Jesus better. So remember in this debate, in this discussion, love, charity. St. Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope which is within you, but do it in charity, in love. Because the person you're talking to is a fellow Christian who loves Jesus. Matthew chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came, uh, okay, well, look down at verse 6. We'll start there. Verse 6. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines 
the precepts of men. So let's look up in verse 1 now and read the whole context. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? So they're asking Jesus about tradition. The tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why did you transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what, is given, what I would have gained, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Verse 6, so for the sake of your tradition, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And you believe in doctrines? And you believe in traditions? And traditions? Doesn't sound so good. I do. Yeah? Doctrines. How do you believe in doctrine? Only a couple. we got some work to do. <laughs> well, actually, there's only a couple Catholics here. So, <laughs> how do you believe in doctrines? Catholic Church has lots of doctrines. Doctrines. And traditions. But not only traditions. Traditions of men. Huh? These are boogeyman words. You hear these words, like you, you hear them used this way. You heard it in that very first thing that I read to you from Ron Carlson. Look at that quote I gave you at the beginning of the talk. The Catholic Church has added doctrines, traditions, and ideas of men. Which are not found in Holy Scripture and which are in fact contrary to it. So you got a problem. Doctrine, tradition, Jesus doesn't seem so happy. You've made void the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You have traditions, we have the Bible. Well, the Bible is the word of God. The traditions are traditions of men and they make void the word of God. Speaking about false traditions, false traditions. He says traditions and traditions of men. Why? False. Oh, it's implied. They're rejecting the fourth. Wow. It's implied. Come on. Implied because they're they're not. Huh? It says tradition of men. Is that versus sacred tradition? Sacred traditions. Oh, sacred. Well, those are Catholic, big T, little T, things like that. Come on. So, what's going on here? Again, context. What are we talking about? Any of Pharisees in the room? <laughs> any Pharisees, Sadducees, some Zealots? Any Essenes around? They're hiding. There you are. Yeah? Any Levites? All oh, well, Pharisees because we believe in resurrection from the dead. No. You, you, Pharisees believed in the resurrection and Pharisees were good people for the most part. But... Any Pharisees? No one belongs to the Pharisee class? Sadducees? Levites? No? Anyone from Benjamin? Judah here? Galilee? Anyone born in Galilee? Some in Galilee? No. So, what's going on? We're in the first century, right? Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, and they're debating over washing of hands. Alright? So you have to talk about the historical context and what's going on. What's this thing about commandments of God and honor your father and mother and what you would have gained from me has it been given to God? What does that have to do with it? And when someone takes you to a passage that seems strange, this verse 6, making for the sake of tradition, make void the word of God, read the context. And if you don't know the answer to the context, ask them. They brought you to the passage. Hopefully they know. And I promise you, more often than not, the person has no, no idea what chapter 15 is about, as the average Catholic does not, and sometimes we can hear from the pulpit the piece and stuff does. So, chapter 15. We've got a few different issues here. Washing of hands, commandments of God, honor father and mother, Pharisees, and then suddenly this thing about Isaiah 
and traditions. Yes. I, I would argue though that that has a lot more pertinence than other than just talking about washing your hands. It's really Absolutely. it's really more doing a tradition for the sake of doing the tradition as opposed to what actually goes along with it. Because they were just they had this tradition and they did it, but they didn't really know why they were doing it. It's just something yeah. going on. Sometimes that can happen with traditions. Like, for example, um, you probably know the story about the, the woman who every Thanksgiving would cut her turkey in half and put it in two ovens. The top would always be cut off, and the top part would always be cooked later. Cook the bottom part first. After that, once that's hot, you cook the top part. And one day her daughter asked her, Mom, why do we always cut the top of the turkey off and cook it second? She said, well, I don't know. You know, ask Grandma. She's over in the other room. She well, uh, so she goes over there, Grandma, how come we're in the kitchen doing it? She says, well, you know, this is how Mom taught me to do it. You know, your great-grandmother, you know, get her on the phone. She wasn't able to make for Thanksgiving, call her. And calls up the nursing home. Hello? He talks to her. Grandma, I got this question. Why do we do this? We always kind of, oh, well, because, you know, uh, dear, we had a very small oven. <laughs> right? So sometimes it's true, traditions or customs can be passed on, and sometimes even sacred tradition can be passed on, or the word of God can be passed on with ignorance. People don't know what things are about. People don't know why Paul says something or Matthew says something. But ignorance does not therefore nullify the value of the tradition or anything that's being passed on, even the word of God. So what's going on in the context? I guarantee the Pharisees know what's at issue here. The Pharisees were the pious Jews in the first period, of the first century. If you were in the first century, I guarantee all of you would be Pharisees. Some of you would probably be some radical Essenes, too. You wouldn't be talking to us. But the Pharisees were the people that would gather together on a Tuesday night when everyone else is watching, you know, Seinfeld or something, and talk about the Bible. Okay? You're not normal. <laughs> you are Pharisees. Stephen because and watching him be stoned because he didn't like God, Moses. Because he loved God and the Torah. He went to Damascus not because he liked to kill people, but he went to Damascus in a rage because he thought that the word of God was being broken. Okay? So Pharisee, they loved the word of God. So what's going on? When a Pharisee asks a question of Jesus, there's a lot going on in the context. They have the Old Testament memorized. And that's why Jesus can say stuff to him that he can't say to you, to you and me. So, thank God we have all four Gospels. Matthew's Gospel is the first Gospel written. In that stage of the church, thoroughly Jewish for the most part. Very few Gentiles coming in. And it's also written for a Palestinian audience. That is the Jews of the first century in Palestine. So Matthew says all kinds of stuff that he assumes his audience understands. His Jewish Christians are reading this, and yeah, washing hands. Oh, that's right. I remember Uncle Joe, who was a Pharisee. He's get mad about that. But we have three other Gospels. Mark's Gospel is often called the Gospel of Peter, not to be confused with the heretical text called the Gospel of Peter. But Mark was the disciple of Peter after his disciple of Paul, and he was in Rome with Peter. You can see this at the end of Peter's first epistle. Mark's here with him. Mark is there with him, and Mark writes down everything that Peter says. The earliest records we have, and you see these, the other church fathers say that Mark wrote down what we would call the Gospel of Peter, the story of Jesus as Peter told it in Rome. Now, in Rome, there's not a whole lot of Pharisees running around. So, Paul, when Peter presents the Gospel of Jesus in Rome, he presents it to a relatively thoroughly Gentile audience. So, he tends to explain things that Matthew just blows right over. Washing of hands, commands of government, moves on, right? He's got a lot of things to say, so he keeps going. Mark stops and explains. That is, Peter stops and explains these things. Otherwise, people, what's this thing about washing hands and all that? Who's a, what's a Pharisee? Is that some kind of dog? So, <laughs> thank God we have Mark's gospel. So flip over to Mark chapter 7, and you can see the parallel text, and Mark will explain to you what's going on. That little short passage in Matthew's Gospel, look at how it's expanded in Mark. Mark chapter? Mark chapter 7. Mark's Gospel is shorter than Matthew's because he tells you less stories about Jesus, but when he tells you a story, he gives you more details. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. I'm sorry, uh, verse 1. 
Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered together to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands defiled. That is, unwashed. Right, so he explains, unwashed and defiled, that means the same thing. So Peter says, defiled, that means unwashed. And then watch this. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, observing the traditions of the elders. You know, that's what Matthew said. Watch this. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they purify themselves, which there are many other traditions that they observe, the wash of cups and pots and vessels and thorns. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, so let a huge explanatory note Mark gave you. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with hands defiled? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teach his doctrines the precepts of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, I didn't have to mention Moses over in Matthew's Gospel. Everyone knew it. Rome? Bible it says this. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, you would have gained this from me, but what you would have gained from me is korban, that is Hebrew for gifted or reserved. Or that is given to God. Notice the translation he gives you. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition, which you hand on. I mean, there's such things to do. Now, you probably still wonder, all right, Corbin, okay, now I'm all right? Well, Mark has given you a lot more details to help you out with with the, the issue. The tradition in the first century that's an issue here is this. It's a tradition that people still have today. When I was a kid, my brother and I, the, the neighbor lady up in Northern California where we lived had given all that she owned. She was a widow and her kids were all gone. And she had given it all to the local school district. The school district was just across the street from us. And she had this huge tract of land, orchards, just to play these pear orchards and walnut orchards, huge amounts of land. But she was an old lady and she used to stay in her house and watch TV. So she figured when she died, better to make sure it goes somewhere, you know, that would be used one, and the school was right next door. So she gave it all to the school district so that when she died, the moment she died, her house would be plowed down, they would plow out all the trees, and they'd put football fields. When I go back there today, it's huge fields of you know, soccer and football fields and kids play out there, the places where my brother and I used to play. This is a good idea, there's nothing wrong with this. When you die, it all gets handed over to whoever you donate to. People do this all the time. They donate things to PETA. They donate things to the church. Ask Father Matthew was the last time he received an inheritance check. Happens all the time to the church. It's a nice, pious thing to do. But the problem is, is that the Pharisees had a tradition that interpreted this tradition. And the Pharisees often constricted the law beyond its original purpose. This is a nice, pious tradition, but the Pharisees said, now listen, if you've dedicated everything to the church or to the temple, then you cannot use, the only person that can use this material is you. And if anyone else asks you for help or assistance financially, you can't give it to them. You've got your SUV in the, in the garage, you can drive it to work, you can drive it around town, you can go shopping with your mother, that's it. But if your mom and dad show up and say, son, you know, the Philistines came over the hill the other day and they wiped out the, you know, the flock and we have, things are a little short. Do you mind, could you give us, I see you got that SUV, could you sell that? I mean, sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a pious person. But I dedicated this all to the temple. So the moment I die, it falls in the hands of the temple. So really, it's the temple, it's not mine. So I'm just simply using it and I can't give it away. And so the Pharisees had interpreted this nice pious custom and restricted it to this point where you could not then use, use the materials to help even your dad and mom. And so Jesus says, look at the insanity of this. You've taken this nice pious tradition because of your tradition and your interpretation of that. You've now broken the very commandment of God. So, but Jesus nowhere condemns the concept of tradition. Jesus 
works by the very concept of tradition. Traditio from the Latin, where we are English, or paradisus in the Greek, just means to hand over, pass something on. Okay? The Bibles you have in front of you are tradition. Someone handed them to you. I'm giving you information. You're receiving tradition, whatever it is, to hand over. And so, Jesus tells his disciples constantly, go out and preach and teach and do the things that I've done. As the Father has sent me, so also I send you. Furthermore, in Paul's epistles, you see over and over again the concept of tradition. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Hold fast to the traditions that I have handed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by epistle. You saw me wrote to Timothy. You've heard my preaching. You've seen what I've done. You see, you saw how I endured the, the, the persecutions. Hold fast. So not only what Paul writes, but also what he teaches. Oral and written tradition. Tradition. That which is handed on. Much of it has been written down, what we call the Bible. But tradition is the apostolic gift that's been handed on to us from the early church. And so in order to hold fast to the apostolic tradition, we must hold not only to the scriptures, the holy scriptures, but we must receive all of the traditions that handed to us. Whether by word of mouth or by epistle. What was that verse? It's in your uh, it's on the handout, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Thessalonians. 